welcome back to Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment, the podcast where we speak to inspirational people from all walks of life who share a deep commitment to their communities and the natural world that sustains them. I'm Callum Swift and I'm joined today by another ID member, Patrick Earls, and we're delighted to be meeting Porrick Fogarty uh, for a walk in a secret bit of rewild at Dublin. Porrick is one of the leading environmentalists in Ireland. He's written a fantastic book, Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, and recently a serialised book on the Irish Wildlife Trust podcast called Shaping New Mountains. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Porrick. Um, pleasure to be here, Callum. Pleasure to see you again. Yeah. Um, can you describe where we are? So we're here at the uh, alongside the River Talca, and the River Talca is not a particularly long river, but it mostly flows through Dublin City, and we're very close to the M50 and that enormous spaghetti junction that people will be familiar with if they go to the Blanchardstown Shopping Centre. But we're down here in, in quite a, a special little nature oasis. So there's there's uh, badgers up in the in the woodland here. This woodland is probably old. Um, you know, it is parts of it are shown on um, some of the maps going back to the 1800s. So uh, it could be a very old woodland. Now it's not it's not the interesting thing about it is it's kind of you know an ecologist might come and and say this isn't a particularly valuable woodland because it's not full of ancient oak trees or it's not even, you know, there's a lot of these old sycamores and so on and there's a lot of ivy on the ground. But uh, but because it has been allowed just to develop by itself, you know, very, sometimes there is a few horses in here, but generally there are no farm animals or anything like that. So you can see, you know, you get these patches of dense scrub over here, great for uh, nesting birds. Uh, you've got these, you know, you can see the patches of, of woodland flowers here. You can see bees and everything. Uh, so it just has that kind of diversity and complexity that you don't get in a lot of yeah. well, formal nature reserves even. And you don't get it in Dublin. You know, it's amazing. Oh, so God. This, uh... I mean, this is why you go to the Phoenix Park after being somewhere like here and it all looks very formal yeah. and very manicured, you know. So, you know, there is, I think we can learn a lot from places like this about how we could manage amenity areas and rewild public spaces it's something that uh i find really frustrating in the phoenix park you've got this huge area of land and you try and find a tree cover and it's yeah. like a patch here a patch there yeah you can see through the whole patch to the other side yeah <laughs> at no point yeah. do you ever feel like you're in a forest or anywhere yeah remotely uh out of the way you just it's a lovely amenity for sure but um, very different feel to this very very different and uh, and i suppose that the that tells us a lot about rewilding because rewilding an awful lot is, is about control and about asserting our control over the landscape and the nature around us. So, you know, you go to somewhere like the Phoenix Park, which is a beautifully maintained park and it has wildlife in it, but it's intensely controlled. I mean, you know, if a tree falls over within a day or two, every branch and twig is swept up lest you know, somebody trips up over it. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's not good for nature. Uh, here you see a tree falls over and, uh, and the tree is allowed to rot or sometimes the tree isn't even dead, it just carries on. And that creates the complexity and the diversity that nature thrives on. Yeah, we keep walking into yeah. it. And we've, um, you know, for me, there's kind of two two aspects to rewilding and we covered a lot of the first one in a talk with Isabella Tree about rewilding on a, you know, on a large scale and rewilding areas. But then there's this whole idea of rewilding our own minds and our own culture and our value systems. 
I really, I think that's uh, something that's vital. And I know you've talked about this before, that the, the single biggest thing we need to do to change is just completely reshape our value systems. Because without that, no amount of kind of patchwork policy is going to do what's needed. And I think fundamental to that shaping our or, or reshaping our value systems is exposure to nature because without it you don't really know what you're missing um and it's but then so few people have exposure to nature or they they go to places they think is nature but really it's a it's a kind of a poor uh it's a poor version of nature and so people aren't, aren't they don't have a point of reference let's say for instance for a, a natural forest for instance or even a natural peatland and and so you know we go to places like public parks or you know woodlands that are mostly commercial conifer plantations and people kind of think oh well this is nature this is good enough and we don't know what we're missing basically yeah and then when you see it you're immediately aware of what you're missing yeah when yeah yeah now, this river here, I mean, even though the water's polluted, there are trout in it, uh, there are otter in it, and uh, there are kingfishers in it. So there's, there is lots of, uh, there is lots going on in it. And you can see the far bank there is completely, you know, wild. It's, uh, I've, I've never been over that side, you know, it's just completely dominated. It's just like a strip that goes between the road and, uh, and the river. And it's completely left to nature. Yeah. Do you think if we had the opportunity to formally protect it a little bit we could achieve even more in terms of biodiversity in an area like this obviously the idea of wilding or rewilding is, is not to interfere but sometimes a little bit of a kickstart or a little bit of help can kind of improve things what, what could you envisage anything like that here yeah I, I i do think identifying these areas as important for biodiversity is important but then you know you, you kind of go well this area has developed because it hasn't been identified, because it's been forgotten about. And sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes uh, nature reserves, because they've been designated as nature reserves, are seen as just amenity playgrounds. And so they attract investment for car parks and greenways and infrastructure that we don't always want in these spaces. No, we want people to access it to a certain extent, but we've seen the way nature conservation has been done the last few years. The money has gone into the infrastructure and basically seeing nature as you know part of a, a tourist offering rather than the value of uh, wild nature for its own sake. So that's my worry about here. But on the other hand, I do think that if it was uh, designated properly as a nature reserve, if, uh, if, if, if it could be given... Uh, if the community could be given ownership over it and help from the local authorities uh, to do certain things, I think that, that would be positive. Then, of course, you come to a place like this and you go, well, what would you do with it? I don't see anything wrong with, with this place. There are places further up the river where there's a lot of invasive species, uh, which would be a good idea to, uh, to remove. Sometimes the river gets very clogged with uh, rubbish you know, particularly after heavy rain, uh, and obviously it'd be great to remove the junk. But other than that, there's really not a lot that uh, you would want to do about mm -hmm. it. But as an educational amenity, it's uh, it's invaluable. We're in a very densely uh, populated urban area here, and you know, if we can get over the health and safety phobia, you know, to be able to bring people down here and just say, look, this nature is messy. Uh, doesn't conform to what we might want out of it 
but look, there's enormous beauty in this messiness and, you know, this great uh, diversity and benefit and just allowing nature express itself. Absolutely. It looks like it could be a real, um, real means of capturing people's imaginations yeah. and uh, exposing them to the, the, the magic of nature and trying to kind of spellbind them a little bit and without them having to, you know, go, go down to the McKillicuddy Reeks or even the Wicklow Mountains. It's just um, on their doorstep. So it's, it's more diverse than the Wicklow Mountains, at least most of the places <laughs> yeah. I've been. Yeah. You mentioned the Wicklow Mountains, but it's... Um, oh, well, I'm just untangling. Um, they are, as you've said, I think, an ecological desert, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You, you're meant to think, wow, isn't this beautiful? And I climb Lug Naquilla all the time. And, you know, in some respects, you're up the mountains, it's lovely, but you do look around and think, well, there's not much else to yeah, see. <laughs> yeah, see yeah, yeah. Like, everywhere you look, it's overgrowing with life. And that's part of the problem. We've been conditioned to being told this is the wilderness, you know, go and enjoy nature over there. But then the stuff that's sometimes all around us or right under our nose, we're not conditioned to see that as as nature. And and sometimes we're even encouraged to, you know, tidy it up. That's yeah. why, you know, you'd be terrified about some official coming down here and saying, oh God, I can see, you know, we just get rid of all of this, tidy this away and, you know, put in a greenway, which would be a disaster. It's something I've noticed uh, certainly during lockdown and everyone's having to stay a bit more local and the canal path along the road canal is absolutely pumping with life mm. and it's human and otherwise and joggers and cyclists and walkers and birds and um, herons and ducks and just it's like a daily dose of the outdoors and it's you know from where I live in Cabra you know you you mentioned uh, in one of the I think it was in um, Shaping New Mountains that the people of Cabra deserve trees as much as the people of Balls Bridge mm. and you know that resonated with me because I live in Cabra and mm. there isn't a tree to be seen yeah yeah having access to just that canal is like a huge um, tonic in an otherwise pretty yeah urban environment like, that's why I think there's something there's something wonderfully democratic about rewilding that it is it's it's not something you have to get on a plane to visit it's not it's not somewhere that's far away that's uh, that nature is all around us and all we have to do is make space for it and when you look at it that way there we, even in a, in a dense city like Dublin there is quite a lot of space that we could give to nature you know without you know reducing space for for buildings even so it's a lot of the stuff is just in our minds i you know i'm usually loath to emphasize individual action when it comes to climate action and biodiversity because that's kind of been what's emphasized for decades you know if you if you use a recyclable straw the world will be fine um, and I, I think it's just you know system-based action is, is what's required but i think this is kind of unique in that the individual action individual exposure to wildlife will change the value systems that then drive systemic action so um i've noticed i planted a um i ripped up the concrete in the front yard of mine in cabra where everyone on the street just has their car parked on a patch of concrete and um i pulled up the concrete and just planted a garden and every day i watch it change and grow and like now i know the changing of the seasons more attuned and you know i see the buds going and i wonder which trees like why is that tree going later than the others and i kind of notice the amount of bees and insects in the mm. air because i think about them pollinating and so then it's completely reshaped and i'm growing vegetables in the back and that's completely reshaped what i value in the world and then now when i read about farming policies and hear about farmers under pressure from the common agricultural policy or the you know in, in economies of scale I, I understand where they're coming from and their problems but i also you know see the value in in having that nature um, whereas before maybe 
it's something I've noticed, you know, you lament quite understandably, like a report came out saying Irish birds are faring appallingly badly and you're saying, why is this not a national scandal? And the honest answer is the majority of people, it, it, that doesn't resonate mm. alarm bells the same way as it does with someone who spent their life amongst birds like you have and knowledge about them. And that's kind of sad. So I, I guess the challenge, and it's I think the biggest challenge we face is how to persuade people that this is worth having and fighting for. Um, and I think being in it is the first step to that. Yeah, I agree. Should we go, should we walk yeah. along? What trees are these? Sycamore. That one. Um, uh, there's some of the shorter ones there. That's an ash tree right here. And uh, there's, there's hawthorn, holly, obviously. Um, this large one here, I think, is an ash tree. This is an ash. I've tried to learn to ID trees, but I got the book in winter and I decided it's definitely a summer pursuit for beginners. Cause <laughs> well, actually, you're looking the more you look at trees, the more uh, the ecologists use the word jizz. You can you, you will then find that you'll identify trees even when you're on the motorway when you're going past it in winter. They all have a special shape. At this time of year, they all have a unique color. Uh, and you know you do you do learn to identify the, the bark see the way this is a horse chestnut here it's quite a tall horse chestnut see the way the bark is twisted around but you don't see that on, on many trees stunning they're always one of the first out chestnuts as well that's how I remember yeah. as a kid yeah and um, yeah I, I made the mistake of trying to identify the tree based on the entire compendium in the book and obviously actually should go for what's likely to be growing there and you know at least in a, in a more wild setting in Ireland this the, the trees like hazel and holly and birch and alder and all the ones that are very common and probably the Japanese something or other that I found in my book and thought I was looking at isn't the right one yeah I mean you also then learn that you know certain trees like particular locations you know you tend to find alder you know in wet places yeah, they seed along rivers, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, that is quite close to me. So how do you know it's a J? Brown. <laughs> There's a few in Phoenix Park as well, I think. There it's are, yeah. Mouth. Yeah. They're not that common over here. Much more common in the UK. Like, but, uh, They're very much woodland. Is that it, yeah? Little blue flashings under the breast. Yeah, they're very colourful crows, yeah. They're kind of like, yeah, more majestic blackbirds, kind of like, yeah. Or not blackbirds, magpies. <laughs> so they bury acorns that spread oats, isn't it? That's right. Do you think there's a, 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 a some sort of a middle ground we could also have between rewilding and overly manicured amenity spaces? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that, you, you know, you can look at you know nature as, as a gradient between yeah. you know we have farms and we have cities at one end that needs to be you know have a have a productive purpose and then there's a there's a gradient then to areas which are just for nature the problem is in ireland is we barely anywhere that is just for nature yeah. everyone's been squeezed out i mean what's interesting here You see this going along here now. Look, this is a this is a crack willow. I think it's a crack willow. There's different types of willows, but you see this type of willow tree is found all the way along the river, and it's an amazing tree uh, because they fall over, or big branches fall over, 
and uh, they just start growing again. But what happens is then the river flows around it and it changes the shape of the river. And all of a sudden you've got a little quiet pool here that's really good for the fish. And then you have a faster area over the other side. And, uh, and you get this uh, much more dynamic form in the river. And like nearly everywhere in Ireland, if a tree falls in the river, I mean, the emergency response unit is out to take the tree out of the river. God help us, it's going to cause flooding. We better get rid of that. So like our rivers are, you know, completely over-engineered and we just don't allow uh, natural processes to happen. And people are starting to acknowledge that, you know, that's contributing to flooding and all these downstream yeah. effects. And yeah. the, the way to mitigate that is uh, to allow the rivers to develop. Just allow them to do what they've been doing for yeah. millions of years, yeah. That, uh, that brings me on to a few questions I wanted to ask you. Um, beavers. Yeah. Um, so you, you touched on how wood can actually perform a, a kind of important role in creating natural pools in, in rivers and stuff. And obviously beavers, would they do something similar in their slowing down the water flow and oh, yeah. mitigating floods and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, be beavers are proven to be amazing ecosystem engineers and uh you know they create this mess that is just you know full of life and creating niches and different habitats for all different kinds of species the problem we have in ireland is that there's no evidence beavers were ever here and that is that is an ethical and a scientific discussion that we need to have about should we deliberately introduce a species which you know just because we don't have the evidence doesn't mean it wasn't here but mm -hmm. you know it does open up a kind of can of worms so on the other hand we bring in animals and plants all the time you know mm -hmm. and it almost seems there is a difference whether we're bringing these in for commercial purpose or an ecological purpose mm -hmm. if it's an ecological purpose i mean there's an impossibly high bar that we have to get over mm -hmm. if it's for a commercial purpose or fire on you know <laughs> who cares and we bring in you know millions of pheasants are released in the countryside mm -hmm. we commercially cultivate pacific oysters which are considered an invasive species you can go down to a pet shop and buy god knows what kind of lizards and things that have been brought in from who knows where you can go to a garden center you can buy invasive species and chuck them in the nearest pond when you're sick of it and there's no control over any of that yet if you, you know as an ecologist if you suggest bringing in beavers you know you're bringing the the the, the pylon on top of you that's it <laughs> it seems very emotive when the returns to nature could actually be much more beneficial for the uh yeah. the, the the beaver to quit but it's all i suppose uh that debate over is it pre-ice age and ice age and ireland being surrounded by water mm. and mm. so i mean it's as a, you said it could they could have existed I know you've in the past expressed dislike for the term ecosystem services and this whole concept of bringing nature into our economic structure because nature has a value in its own right, which I completely agree with. Um, but then the problem is people aren't, va aren't, aren't valuing nature's inherent value to anywhere near the degree that it should be. Um, so then do you, is the lesser of two, you know, is, is the, it's the least good option, but the, only option is to try and give that value in an economic sense so that governments have a, a reason to protect it or uh, there's no easy solution but I, I mean there there may be a role for it uh, I haven't dismissed the idea of natural capital completely but where I think the problem lies is that natural capital facilitates the current power economic system it doesn't challenge it 
and we have to be challenging the way power works and the economic system that we live in if we're going to solve these problems. Uh, and, and that's where I think, you know, naturally you can, we can spend years developing natural capital accounts and then they'll be completely ignored. And, you know, we, we've seen that in Britain where they're building this high-speed rail line and they have natural capital accounts, but the rail line still went through ancient woodlands. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the, the the real value of the woodland was was never going to be appreciated. You know, so um, you know what? maybe capital account ca natural capital has the power to release money for particular projects, but it's not going to solve our problems. Uh, yeah, that's very true. But you know, take a farmer for example now who's faced with decisions about how to use his or her land, and they have to provide for their family and the future. And it's all very well saying, well, your land is inherently valuable when it's natural, and but they don't they get paid for that. So they say, well, my land's a quarter of the value, actually, if I plant uh, native virus trees than if I farmed it intensively. Um, so in the immediate term, you know, having subsidy regimens that would promote them farming it in a more sustainable way seems, seems like a desirable thing, even though that is putting a price on nature and... and that falls under the remit of natural capital. It does, but it is also addressing the symptom uh, rather than the cause. Uh, the reason why farmers have land that is not valued uh, in any monetary sense is because we have commodified our food system. We've, we've used capitalist principles to, uh, to develop the, the modern food system so that the farmer's produce is just dumped onto international markets and, uh, and, it's a, and it's a race to the bottom. So like farmers producing beef uh, are, are, you know, don't get much money. In fact, most farmers don't get, uh, get paid very much for their produce and are losing money. They're dependent on the subsidy system. So this, the danger then of, of the subsidy system then is it becomes a kind of a welfare crutch uh, that's just sometimes perpetuating systems that we know are not working for anybody in particular. So uh, you have to use subsidies very carefully. Having said that, I'm a, I'm a big fan of paying farmers for, for delivering public goods, whether that is uh, nature or water or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and there are... <laughs> oh, yeah. What's that? Castrol, is it? Is it? Yeah. It's probably water, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Kestrel interrupted. Yeah. Uh, we've seen in the Burren and we've seen in some other programs where farmers are rewarded. They're not just you know, paid a, a, you know, a, a subsidy for a box-ticking exercise. They're paid for actually producing results. And I think that is a model that, that we could follow right enough. But ultimately, uh, we, have to, we have to go back to what are called agroecological systems if we're to get our farming system back into nature. The risk of, that we are at the moment is uh, cleaving farmers in two, basically saying well, one side of the country is profitable and competitive, and the other side of the country isn't. So we'll subsidize the other side of the country to produce nature and stuff, and that's fine. But then the side of the country that we're saying is profitable and competitive is driving our greenhouse gases, is polluting all the waterways in the south and the west of the country, uh, and it's, it's eradicating nature. But what do you say to the people who live in those parts of the country? Sorry, guys, but you live in, in a sacrificial zone that is just going to be dedicated to dumping 
milk powder onto world commodity markets, you don't have the same right to clean water as people in the west of Ireland. Um, I think that's fundamentally unfair. So uh, it's also unfair on the on the uh, the beef farmers or the sheep farmers who are basically told to hang up your hat to allow the dairy to expand. So. You know, the system at the moment is riven with inequality and I think that has to be addressed because it's, it's a part of the environmental problem. And I think um, that is, our, you know, that's partly our responsibility as consumers because we've, we've been the ones driving the race to the bottom of prices. And I know until recently, I like I don't eat meat, but even vegetables, I would just happily go to Lidl and buy the cheapest peppers i don't stop and think oh is this is my action now and buying these cheap peppers suppressing prices in some farm in some country that's driving down industrial you know environmental standards maybe i should go to a local farm shop and pay triple the price and i think i probably should um i can afford to and but those kind of thoughts as consumers and again i'm, I'm loath to f make this individual focus but the um, and I, I heard a great quote recently that we shouldn't be standing there in a shop fretting over which is the sustainable choice to make. We should be fretting that why aren't all the choices sustainable, um, and everything that's available to us to buy should be produced in a way that's ecologically sound. Um, but yeah, for for decades it's just been a given that you go to the supermarket and buy the cheapest possible produce, and anything else would be a bit silly. And that's what's led to this race to the bottom farming practices. I think the the, the narrative around the price of food has basically been paid, placed on customers. It's, we're told consumers aren't willing to pay more for their food. But the fact is food is overproduced and that has driven down the price of food. I mean, you know, I could say I'm not willing to pay for an expensive flat screen TV, but that doesn't make them cheap. You know, uh, this is about supply and demand. The, the, the our part of the world is completely oversupplied with food. That's what makes it so cheap. That's what also drives food waste, which is about a third of the food is, is dumped. Um, and and that, that's really at the heart of it. I think people are perfect. Of course, people will be willing to pay more for food. We have to have food. People will will uh, will, will pay for it if they have to. Um, uh, but, you know, it has been, again, we come back to the way the system has been set up. It has been designed to create cheap food, which, of course, is bad news for the farmers. And then we've subsidized them to maintain their income. But really what has happened is the big processors have commandeered those subsidies and they have been the ones creaming off the, the big profits. Yeah, that's something I know you and John Gibbons have uh, talked about before that um, they, the, these big agro lobby groups, you know, they represent the, uh, or they claim to represent the individual Irish farmer and that, you know, picture postcard thing that's on the side of all the beef packets that are shipped abroad. But actually they're not representing that, that small farmer. They're representing the huge, you know, commercial um, enterprise that's massive scale and is pricing out all the small farmers from their traditional practice, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think the? I guess the farmers are probably aware of that too. Uh, I'm, I'm sure most farmers are aware of it. I mean, most farmers are aware that they're not getting uh, they're not getting paid particularly well for their for their products. Um, most farmers can see the inequality. I'm sure within their within their their business. Uh, uh, unfortunately, where we where we diverge is on what the solutions to that problem should be. There's no point in denying that there is conflict there, you know, yeah. I mean, there is, of course.
<laughs> I mean, if you are if you are a farmer, I mean, I have I have great sympathy for farmers because they must be despairing at what's going on at the moment because uh, they've been told to do all these things. They've been told to drain their fields. They've been told to uh, put you know artificial fertilizer on their fields. Uh, they're incentivized under the subsidy system to remove habitats to remove scrubby bushes and to drain ponds and uh, and and now this the system is turning around and saying okay guys all that stuff we've been telling you to do for the last 30 years we want you to undo it you know and we're going to I'm pay not- you now to undo it so it has been really this is the problem with subsidies that uh, they're a, absolutely a double-edged sword yes they keep uh, incomes going to a certain extent uh, but they also disempower farmers they've taken a lot of the power uh, away from farmers whereas farmers knew their land intimately and, and knew how to respond to the soil and to the to the weather now they're living in fear of an inspector who comes along with a clipboard and ticks boxes and if they tick the wrong boxes they lose money so farmers themselves are doing things they know are are are, are bad for the environment but they're doing it because they have to do it to get the money yeah, and that's, that, as you say, that speaks to the failure of the system and mm. having those kind of perverse incentives. That that trend, which we've seen, obviously, in a kind of lot here in Ireland, the over-industrialization of farming and the, this idea that the land must be productive, the removal of scrub, this thing which has just been pervasive for, you know, since we joined the EU. Um, and then, like, there's also that concept of just trying to achieve nature-friendly farming across the board, not just wild nature and productive east nature in the east of Ireland, productive, but like across the board. How? I mean, one, we're we're very far away from the other, as in where we where we are now. How would it be fair to say that subsidies are gonna have to kind of play a part in in in, in kind of reimagining our relationship with agriculture and the land? And there's talk of obviously big reforms from the EU now in the pipeline, but obviously the agro, big agri-food is, is lobbying hard against it. They're being watered down constantly. Do you, what's your view in terms of how much we're going to achieve in these uh, these five-year budgets, isn't it? I think they have like so. Carbon if, budgets. Or, or, yeah. And the, the, the cap budgets as well. If we get locked into one that isn't ambitious enough, we kind of, seems to me like we've lost a, another half decade of kind of mm. poor practices and not enough land stewardship and not enough... I don't know reform. Um, do or did you follow? Are you following what's happening oh, in yeah. Europe? Like, and, and what what's kind of? I know there's different kind of blocks within within the uh, parliament lobbying, and what's it? When will we know how how kind of creative these are? And the government now, the Greens are saying a lot of the climate bill in terms of agricultural targets and emissions, it's totally dependent on the EU. They're kind of distancing themselves from it, saying that like well, we'll, um, we'll have to wait and see, you know, how much money we can redirect in kind of sustainable farming practices. And they're kind of, uh, I suppose, um, yeah, they seem to be shying away from responsibility a little bit in the language they're using. And then obviously there's just this, this, this complete inconsistency with the kind of ambitions to continue um, dairy expansion and stuff. I mean, how do you see the next year going? I mean... <laughs> It's very hard to say, isn't it? I mean, you can, you can see greater tension between the European Commission, which has set, set this very high level of ambition, uh, and the power struggles uh, 
elsewhere, put it that way. I mean, you know, the big farming organizations want to keep subsidies flowing towards those who are producing volume. They don't want money being diverted to environmental schemes, you know, that are going to come with strings attached. And so there is, this is what I mean about going back to the power, this is a power struggle. And um, and that that has to be challenged if we're going to get anywhere. The problem is I just see denial everywhere. I mean, I've been reading the new agri-food strategy that came out last weekend, I don't know if you've seen that. Expansion, um, expansion, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, yes, we're going to be addressing all these environmental problems, but yeah, we're still going to expand. Mm. We want to export more. And so um, the frame is always economic. Uh, there's a complete refusal to accept fundamentally that we live within very fixed uh, biological limits on the planet. And the solutions, of course, which are not uh, rocket science, you know, returning to agroecology. Obviously, that's going to involve changing our diet. That, that's, that's in the scientific literature. We have to move towards a plant-based diet. Um, and we can move towards agroecological principles and we can give more land back to back to nature, big scale rewilding. But what's what's in in there for the corporations? You know, what we're asking, the flip side of that ask is to say to a lot of these uh, big food processors that, you know, we're going to we're going to reduce your profits. We're going to, you know, reduce the volume of you know beef and, and dairy stuff that we're going to produce. So obviously they're going to fight tooth and nail over this. Um, and that's why if you read the agri-food strategy that's out at the moment, you know, you can see there's, there's this kind of, you know, dismissive mentions of regenerative agriculture. And yeah, we'll do a little bit more organic, but, you know, fundamentally, it's written by the same people who wrote the last one. And it's, you know, we're going to drive on. And I, yeah, that's a broader trend. I just saw today a headline in The Guardian that 2021 is forecast to be the highest, the steepest rate of increased emissions of carbon since 2008 post the crash um which just beggars belief you know i know to the, the world government saying right we're coming to the end of the coronavirus crisis let's just pump subsidy money into cheap fossil fuel energy to mm. kickstart our economies mm -hmm. and you do think like what hope is there i know <laughs> if I that's know. everyone's solution like what we couldn't have got a better reset you know in terms of the crisis we've gone through with the pandemic and having to reframe how we live our lives and having to reframe how societies work that would never would have happened so rapidly without this crisis and now we're in a position to enact new legislation and kind of encourage or shape how we emerge from the crisis and it appears that we're going to emerge the old school just on steroids and mm. just ramping up fossil fuel it's mm. insane mm. yeah it's like we're in a serious just period of great awareness yeah like yeah. <laughs> great hypocrisy like and when can we jump to a kind of a the point where we are but that's what i mean yeah. like the awareness thing we've had the awareness for 50 years yeah. Yeah. you know where it's it's earth day this week and you know it's it's 51 years since the first mega earth day in america that had millions of people on the street we knew all about climate change in the 1980s when Jim Hansen gave mm. his presentation yeah. to Congress. But the power relations haven't changed. And this is what uh, what I mean about, you know, the, the, the ethical response. Well, we've had, you know, great technological innovations and, you know, huge advances in personal convenience, 
you know, for for wealthy people and middle class people in the world, we haven't had any sense of ethical revolution with with nature in mm. that period. We've had ethical revolutions in Ireland on other issues and other social issues, which kind of shows what can be done. But that's what's that's just going to ha- have to happen. I think we're not we're not going to get to where we want unless we we recognise that there are limits and we have to step back. How do you think we catalyze that change in people's psyche? I think there are uh, education is absolutely fundamental. Um, I think we have a generation at the moment. You know, not, not I'm not talking about young people. I'm talking about middle-aged people like me who basically know nothing about how nature works, who don't accept that we live within a living system that we are a part of. I think that knowledge, and that's that's not, I don't mean for that to sound like I'm condemning them. I mean, it just wasn't something we learned in school. It's not something that people in college learn. It's not part of the thinking in economics that we live within finite limits. So for for everybody, that education has been completely lacking, right down to being able to, you know, name the types of trees and the birds that visit your mm. garden. We have we have believed that we have divorced ourselves completely for nature, and we don't ha- really have to worry about uh, the fate of nature. You know, it's sad and all that things are disappearing, but it's not really going to affect our lives. Mm. And that that's. Uh, you know that's obviously wrong and that has to be that has to be addressed and the only way of doing that is through massive levels of, of awareness raising like what we've seen with the coronavirus you know you look at the 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 report that came out you, you mentioned i was tw- tweeting about it the report two-thirds of our bird species are headed to extinction and while that was reported on as a little factoid just you know among the many hundreds of factoids that hit us every day there was no analysis. There was no, you know, let's have a panel discussion about this. Let's call in some ministers and ask why this is mm-hmm. happening. You know, let's call in some scientists and say, what does this mean? There was none of that. There was just, you know, kind of a regurgitation of the facts. And then let's just move on to something else. Absolutely. It's a, it's like an existential crisis, really, uh, in a similar sense to the way we perceived COVID a year ago. Yeah. Yet our reaction just, we're not having that sustained systemic reaction from above in terms of, government uh, whose who's duty it is to protect us and you know um, yeah. yet they're kind of just laying idly by and not really they don't seem to be keen to really uh, present the facts mm. in their truest form yeah yet it's just you know kind of light touch stuff you know what i mean and awareness and targets but whereas uh you know we saw a very visceral kind of uh reality checks with the pandemic with the pandemic you know they were willing to do that yet this is obviously a much 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 bigger threat yeah, kinda, yeah. would you be interested or in the kind of the idea of oh, I had to use kind of mandatory nature camps or like some sort of more concerted effort from government to inform us of the unpleasant facts you know in relation to diet you know and something in New Zealand I know they actually educate kids now on on dairy and the, the kind of damaging uh, environmental impacts and stuff could you see us moving towards something like that or I'm, I'm sure the IFA would uh... <laughs> not getting that into schools <laughs> We, I mean, we've had a glimpse of that already. Them Ireland, bones, them bones, the calcium. Do you remember that? Yeah, Cap-tab. you don't, you don't, you don't touch it. Uh, <laughs> you know, because you will get hammered by the by mm. the the agri groups. But yeah, we have to start telling the truth about what's going on. I mean, mm. that's what that's Greta Thunberg's slogan, isn't it? Just tell the truth. Very hard thing to do. This is what I mean about denialism. Mm. You know, there's so much denial everywhere I look. Uh, such reluctance just to face up to the facts or to to listen to what to really what the scientists are telling us. It's just easier to turn away. I think it's, 
that's definitely true in some respects, but I think there's also just a complete divorcing of our majority of people's lives, their food, their lifestyle choices, and the effects on on those that their choices are having. You know, the food industry is as professional at just packaging food, no matter how it's produced, in these lovely clear plastic that you just pick up and it looks delicious and it's got a picture of a Scottish Highlands on it or whatever and we eat it kind of buying that and not having any particular reason to doubt it and then you know films come around like Seaspiracy and everyone's like whoa you know that's how salmon's produced and they're covered in lice and actually if if people were taken on school trips being like even the good salmon this is this is where it comes from and there's a frothing tank of farmed salmon who are being eaten alive by sea lice mm -hmm. they might be less you know inclined to eat it and yeah I believe they do that in France. French children are brought to farms, aren't they? This is where yeah. I think there was, was it Denmark abattoirs. or somewhere they were brought to an abattoir. <laughs> really right. Yeah. Well, progress. You know, and I, I remember, um, you know, growing up. I grew up in London, but my family were both farmers, and my godfather was a farmer in Somerset, and we used to go there every month. And I remember, you know, seeing them go out in, in my grandparents in Africa and just kill a, a sheep by hand, slit its throat, and that was what we ate for dinner. And it was a sheep that I knew the name of because I'd grown up and it was even a picture of me and I was I burst into tears and said, we're eating fluffy. But I was like, where do you think fruit comes from? Like, I was like, we didn't have to name it, which maybe is a step far. But, um, you know, that was for me an education as a child. Okay, yes, it's delicious to eat a Sunday roast, but uh, my, my grandpa had to go out and slit this animal's throat before we could eat it. And obviously no one now ever experiences that or a very tiny fraction of the population. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, we should have humane ways of killing and processing animals and all that. But we, we also need to be aware of that it happens. And I think kids now, like, most you know, these surveys pop up that, you know, the proportion of kids don't know that beef is from a cow. Or yeah. that you, know, you know, I think that surprises as well. I think they'll probably uh, steer the ship in the right direction once they do know, you know, the, the yeah. price and the cost of all this. And, yeah. I, you know, plant based diets it's again it just seems like it's such, just a, such a basic mentality shift that we're all capable of and um yet there's seem all these forces these kind of vested interests trying to kind of uh tinker with our, our, our kind of our concepts of what food is and all that like but uh i, I kind of an analogy you were using in your book there that i was listening to uh just about social change and obviously the denialism we're, we're going through at the, at the same time i suppose is would you agree or I think you mentioned that kind of it's existed before in terms of civil rights and women's rights we've had all these kind of ethical issues which we've uh, dillied and dallied about for decades and centuries sometimes and then suddenly boom there's just a kind of sea of change a, a watershed moment and we, we we never go back and we just kind of are baffled that we ever behaved like mm -hmm. that I mean mm -hmm. I suppose um that's what we're all hoping for <laughs> that that's, that's hoping sooner for. rather than later yeah. I mean, I do see signs of it happening. I see a lot of people engaging with with this issue that mightn't have been engaging a year or two ago. And that's obviously very, very positive. Uh, but you have to put the structures in to build, you know, that uh, momentum. Uh, you know, you have to empower the, the teachers and the lecturers in universities. You have to put the, the courses on the syllabus, whether it's engineering or catering or economics you know emphasizing that you know our economy lives within a finite system and no matter what you're doing you're interacting with that system and you have to know how you're interacting with it and appreciate that if you're going to address it
This is such an amazing find. Uh, where else in Dublin are your go-to spots for a bit of wilderness? Uh, well, I haven't had huge uh, options now since... Uh, oh, 5k. I mean, this is a trap. This is a trap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, I have Pre-COVID Park, which is yeah. very nice, you know. Not as wild as I'd like it to be, but it's still very nice. And I have the canal, which is which is also very nice. Uh, so, you know, I, as far as my five kilometers goes, yeah. it's, not, it's not too bad. And I have here, you know, I'm conscious that a lot of people really have kind of rubbish green space within their five kilometers. Uh, and I think that has kind of come to the fore, hasn't it, in during the coronavirus? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is. Um Again, in your in your book, I, you and Nessa Horkin talk a bit about the green apartheid yeah. that exists, uh, you know, across the world and in Dublin. And just you know, if you compare, you know, Dublin four, Dublin six to somewhere like West Dublin, there's mm. just a tree canopy is really uh, incomparable, and just green spaces are not all equal. Yeah. And under often you just find these uh, vastly kind of underplanted kind of green expanses in in housing estates and. How do you think? Um, that's a hazel, by the way. You were oh, that's mentioned fine. hazel, yeah. How do you think we can kind of overcome uh, that that kind of class, uh, social, socio-economic kind of dif differential in interests and engagement in nature? It's, we're just just a pure inequality that, that councils are willing to maintain and plant in some areas and not in other areas. Yeah, I think it comes down to a lack of investments, doesn't it? I mean, a I don't think green spaces have been seen as essential infrastructure. Um, you know, they don't get the same level of maintenance as the traffic lights or the sewers do. So, you know, green spaces have been historically neglected. But also, um, if you want, what you want is for local people to feel that they have some custodianship over their green spaces. So a lot of the time what has happened is the council might have gone out and they planted a load of trees or maybe even they got the local people to plant the trees and then they went off and maybe the trees were broken or, you know, didn't quite develop. And that was it, you know, so there hasn't been the sustained engagement uh, with people to allow them to maybe uh, teach them how to uh, maintain these places or what they should look like or how they should look. So uh, I think that has been very disempowering for a lot of local people. So for instance, there was an article in the Irish Times a few months ago, which contrasted green space during the pandemic in Black Rock with green space in Ballymun. And I mean, the neighbors in Black Rock were, you know, very much engaged with their local politicians. We want picnic benches, we want X, Y, and Z, and they got it all. Uh, whereas out in Ballymun, they have, you know, this vast expanse of deadly, boring, mowed grass that really mm. wouldn't encourage anybody to uh, to hang around. So, I mean, that, that has to come down to uh, investment in these areas. Yeah, it can't be just a matter of planting a small tree once and just hoping it will just take care of itself after that. Yeah. They need to come back to it and yeah. water it and plant more. Um, I mean, the pollinator plan yeah. uh, has been very good, I think, at engaging regular people in the value of, you know, what we have been calling weeds, uh, like dandelions and ivy and things like that. And, you know, the needs to be a little bit messy, not be so fastidious. Uh, and I mean, but that has been an education process in people to make them look at their green spaces in a, in a different way. Um, there's no reason why that couldn't be done all over uh, Dublin. But you see that there's, like what I was saying about the Phoenix Park, there was just a very 
controlling environment and then sometimes you also get a, a sense of fear that oh my god if we allow oh there's yeah. an egret oh, so it is yeah it really is a <laughs> it really is a haven here yeah yeah it's all <laughs> going on that's incredible yeah we've seen so many interesting birds and sure got some good knowledge there factory no i'm a bird geek i'll disclose that <laughs> oh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what have we got just in about 20 feet in front of us i can see a gray heron there's then the white bird is an egret, isn't it? I see mallards in there as well. Two mallards. A little couple there, male and female, yeah. In a kind of swampy area. Um, I think learning to identify trees and birds and things, it's, it opens up this whole new world of enjoyment when you're in nature because you're not this passive bystander. You, you can actually, everything you see around you is a point of interest. And you're like, oh, that's the first time I've seen this type of tree in this area. Yeah, yeah. Usually they're by a river or wonder how that seed got there and, you know. I've, I've, I would kind of compare it to going to a, an art gallery with, you know, imagine going to an art gallery with no information on the artist or the name of the picture. So you can go through and you can admire the pictures. But, you know, when you're armed with some of the, the story about who painted it and why, it just opens up a whole new level of appreciation. So that's why I do think it's important to learn the names of the things uh, around you. And how, do you, how would you recommend people do that who are, who are complete novices? Well, I mean, we're lucky we have so many uh, books and guides and even on the Internet, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of groups that are that are willing to help you uh, learn about the, the different birds. And, you know, you start with the stuff that you're seeing every day and you progress from there. Yeah, I was buzzing when I identified the cormorant in the, in the rock and out. I was like, that doesn't look like a duck. Uh, what is it? And then got my little bird book out and found it and was like, oh, it's a cormorant. Um, it's like a treasure hunt. Yeah, some of those, uh, I cheated as well, some of those uh, plant recognition apps are actually incredible. Like, yeah, kinda, really work, yeah. Really work well. Like, and just, even for weeds and unusual little things like that, it's incredible the, the, the recognition it can get. Also, admittedly, it need, the leaves need to be in full bloom, but uh, no, they work. Ooh, let's give it a go. Yeah, no, really well. And what would you recommend people do in their small spaces, their gardens and things to help biodiversity? Oh, I, I think I think you can you can do rewilding at a very small scale. I mean, I've done it in my own small suburban garden. Um, I've had an elder tree plant itself. I had a cherry tree plant itself, and I've just decided not to cut them down and let them grow. Um, I have, you know, I, I do cut the grass a little bit just to, you know, make make it look like it hasn't gone to hell completely. But, you know, maybe three quarters of my front lawn now I don't mow during the summer and then I mow it in the autumn. And uh, and that's it. Lovely. And that helps the, the pollination of the yeah, bees. I mean, What's I, the idea behind that? Yeah, because, well, at the moment, my garden is full of dandelions. And that's, you know, dandelions are absolutely crucial for bees coming out, particularly, you know, let's say the early part of April when it can be quite cold and there's not an awful lot of things in flower. You've got bumblebees coming out of their hibernation and they're hungry, they need something to eat. So dandelions are really important. And I mean, the reason why our bees are facing extinction is mostly due to starvation. Just isn't enough for them to eat in the countryside anymore. So, uh, so just allowing us to, uh, allowing these things to flower and go to seed. And is there a role for bird boxes in an urban environment or are they not oh, yeah. going to be? Yeah, I would, I would say so, yeah. Um, although it's it's kind of hard. I, I put up a bird box and I haven't had any takers so far. Uh, but I have found that if you have vegetation that is messy, you're more likely to get a bird, maybe, you know, because birds need cover. 
um, and natural vegetation provides that cover better than anything else. So particularly if you've got a bigger garden and you can maybe let a whole corner get all shrubby and dense, uh, that's very good for birds. And yeah. of course it's very good for lots of other things as well. It can be good for hedgehogs and beetles and everything else. It's occurred, it's occurred to me and Callum was saying earlier that he kind of he tore up his front uh, front driveway and he's kind of letting it kind of uh, rewild a little bit and, and, and planting some stuff there. We've I was just thinking about it. We got this huge untapped resource in in, in that our cities are predominantly tarmac and paved, yeah. uh, and you know a lot of time it unnecessarily tarmac and paved. We don't need areas which we're not walking on or yeah. cycling on or driving on. It'd be great if we could see more uh, kind of opening up of this uh, these hard surfaces, and um, and then like you said as well, the other untapped resources are people's back gardens. Yeah, just uh, just a huge amount of land there, which could be. Uh, Maybe manicured a little less, or yeah, 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 no doubt. Yeah. It's kind of perverse that actually, I find living I, I, my garden backs onto the Lewis line and then uh, the canal, so I've got heaps of birds um, in the back and birdsong, and there seems to be more life than sometimes in the countryside. Oh, you know? Know, know, you go for a hike in Wicklow, you see a sheep, and <laughs> that's it, and not a bird, not a bee, like a, a lost cow in a yeah. sick, in a sick plantation. Yeah, and that's your wildlife exposure. And well, there's, a, there's a swan down there near you, nesting literally on the side of the rail line. Oh, really? Have you seen it? No. My God, and you'd wonder, gosh, she's taking her life in her hands now. <laughs> it goes to show, like nature, a lot of the time doesn't need very much. It just needs a bit of space. A little bit yeah. of space. So, what would your, um, to wrap things up, what would your hope be for Ireland in the next 10 years? In terms of biodiversity, what would you like to see happen? Uh, I, w I would love to see rewilding embraced by people and by government policymakers. I think we have to recognize that wild nature and natural ecosystems uh, are not just desirable, but they're absolutely essential. Uh, because we know we can do it if we put our mind to it. I don't think it's technically a difficult thing to do. Um, and the other thing that I would love to see happen is for our farming system to move to a, an agroecological approach that benefits nature and benefits ordinary farmers. I'd love that too. <laughs> thanks so much for talking to us. It's been great. My pleasure. Here's hoping, real pleasure. Yeah. Lord, thanks. Don't tell anyone about this place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. No, right, right. We want to capture people's imaginations, but not that way. <laughs>